1: hi there and welcome back to life out loud a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true maybe all too true stories i'm rebecca one of your hosts tonight hi everyone
0: i'm karen another one of your hosts tonight and tonight we want to especially note that these stories are quite heavy uh many of us are either students at john jay or alum and many listeners of ours are also from John Jay, So we will just wanna note that if today's story is hit especially close, uh, John Jay's Wellness Center uh, has counseling services for any students and staff, and you are free to use them uh, whenever needed.
2: I'm Leah, another one of your hosts. Thank you for joining us tonight on the second episode of our sixth season entitled From an Insider.
3: And I'm Amy. In this episode, two authors explore what it means to play support for close family members going through life-threatening diseases. Now, let's get into the first story of the night. This first story
0: is by a new author to the podcast, Sophia. Sophia is a 20-year-old Brooklynite and a junior at John Jay. She hopes that sharing the story will help to validate and empower other humans if you're ever in a situation similar to hers.
1: A warning that this story touches on very sensitive topics that may be difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised.
3: Let's take a listen to Sophia's story entitled, Discovery and Recovery.
4: (sighs) Where the fuck is my shirt? Brooklyn feels like a borough-sized sauna in mid-August, so I'm on a hunt for my favorite flowy black tank top. My younger sister, Jack, is in the bathroom again, so I text her to see if she knows anything I don't. No response. My sister's always been a clothing thief, so I begin to rummage through the drawers of her cedar-stained dresser. I lift the shamrock green MMA shirt and her Brooklyn roller derby tee with the Rosie the Riveter logo. I look past the maroon turtleneck and all the random oversized t-shirts she collects. I reach the bottom of all the piles, but my search returns nothing. Feeling defeated, I decide to check her backpack as a last-ditch effort. Sometimes she packs extra outfits away in her school bag and forgets to unload them when she gets back home. Being Jack's sister means you may find your clothes hidden under history textbooks from time to time. Her backpack is blue and it rests to the left of her bed. Squatting down I grab hold of one of its zippers and open the first pouch. Her rainbow mosaic pencil case. Crumpled papers. Pencil shavings? I shudder a little and wonder how we developed into stark opposites on the cleanliness scale. Still, no shirt in sight. I move on to the next section of the bag hurriedly. This pocket's smaller than the last. I spot some black leggings and a pair of pink polka dot socks. Hopeful, I dig out the clothing to check what's underneath. And then it hits me. The smell of vomit. One of my hands instinctively jerks to my nose to protect it from the stench that's floating out into the air. Equal parts worried and confused, I reach my other hand deep into the backpack and fish out a freezer-sized plastic baggie. It's so worn I could barely see through it. Pressing the plastic against its contents, I notice condensation leaking down the inner lining. I slowly peel apart the top of the Ziploc bag and realize that it's hiding a toothbrush. Normal enough, but it reeks so badly my throat starts to burn. I crane my neck to get a closer look. The long skinny plastic body of the toothbrush is warped and disfigured. The purple detailing that used to be on its back is faint. A lot of the color appears to have corroded over time. The brush is stained in ugly yellowish blotches that cluster toward the top. The bristles are mangled, jetting out in every direction except the one they're supposed to. I feel sick to my stomach because I know what this means. I have an unmistakable piece of wet, rancid evidence right in front of my face. I don't want to believe it, but this discovery confirms my greatest nightmare. My sister has an eating disorder. Jack and I have a lot in common. People who don't know us well think we share a face. When we're out together, strangers usually ask if we're twins. I say, Yeah, we are, without hesitation, because it's nice to be compared to the prettiest person in the world. Aside from our looks, we've also shared a room our whole lives. When we were younger, we'd stay up way past our bedtime, whispering made-up stories to each other and filling up the darkness with our laughter. Before I'd fall asleep, I'd say, Good night, Jack. I love you. It's comforting to have another person that shares your sense of humor. Jack can do the best fat bastard impression I've ever heard. She gets a kick out of jumping in elevators, but stopped recently after the time she got us stuck in one for a couple hours. We like to watch Melissa McCarthy movies together when we're really happy or really sad. At the dinner table, we sit next to each other and crack jokes that no one else gets. When guests seem confused, my mom always says, Don't even try to understand, those two speak their own language. We're twins when we want to be, but we're also undeniably different people. For starters, my sister's really cool. One of my many nicknames for her is Miss Hollywood because she wears sunglasses indoors and she stomps around the house on any old weekday wearing brightly colored high heels. She's a hands-on type of person and you can always find her creating or designing. If she's not in the bathroom mirror with a towel around her shoulders, self-dyeing her hair red or blue or any other color from the rainbow, she's sprawled out on our bedroom floor making a new skirt from an old piece of fabric. (sighs) I always beg Jack to come on walks with me on sunny days, but she'd rather run around the park in torrential downpours, umbrella-less like a total maniac. I know I want to be a mom one day but Jack aspires to be the best dog mom and has already dubbed herself the cool aunt. My sister's never been big on physical affection, but she knows I need it and goes out of her way to give me random hugs throughout the day. After I turn in big assignments that I'm not confident in, she'll sit with me on the couch and listen to me worry out loud. She asks, did you try your hardest? And when I tell her yes, she says, I'm so proud of you and pulls me in close. She's honestly the most empathetic person I've ever met. She feels things deeply. And when she hurts, you can see the way it weighs down on her shoulders. Growing up, she stopped in front of mirrors a lot. I remember sitting in our room together. I'd write in my diary and listen to the red hot chili peppers on my pink portable radio. She'd sit cross-legged in front of our body length mirror for hours. She'd run her fingers across her cheekbones then stand up and pose her body. Her eyes would trace predictable lines from feet to legs to head, always stopping somewhere in the middle to linger on her midsection. (sighs) I resolve that I really don't know what to do with the toothbrush, so I bring it to my parents. I trust them and I think they'll know what to do. They confirm my suspicions. Jack's recently confessed that she's been struggling with eating I don't know how I didn't notice it before, but it all makes sense. She barely eats now, but when she does, she tucks her plate right into the dishwasher and rushes upstairs to the bathroom, often spending hours in there. At night, when she's been gone for a while, I lay in the quiet darkness and I beg her over text, come to bed, I really want to tell you what happened to me today. And she responds, I'm not ready yet. Most days, I don't know what to do with myself, so I do my research. It helps me feel both better and worse simultaneously. I'm horrified to learn that anorexia is the deadliest mental health disorder of them all, and it definitely doesn't help to add bulimic tendencies into the mix. It's hard to digest the fact that after recovery, relapses are possible and even likely for survivors of this disease but I feel a little better when I read that there's some hope in this and that catching an eating disorder at an early stage makes the chances of recovery skyrocket. Another site helps to reassure me that it's okay as a sibling to struggle in this situation. It's comforting to be reminded that I need love and support too. My family tries as best as we know how to help her. As it turns out though, telling someone to just start eating isn't really the best approach. For a while, dinners end with their trademark untouched foods slamming doors and heads in hands. By the end of a lot of them, I've often lost my own appetite. Jack's been in therapy for a while, and her therapist, Cheryl, thinks it's best to not focus on the eating disorder. It's just a coping mechanism, she says. She wants to dig deep during sessions to find out what underlying issue causes Jack to avoid or purge her food. For a while, we try our best to follow Cheryl's hands-off method. But it doesn't work, and my sister only gets worse. Leslie doubles as Beth's replacement and her polar opposite. She champions family therapy, also known as the Maudsley approach. It suggests a militaristic eating schedule of three meals a day plus three snacks and positively no more extended bathroom times. Leslie believes that food is the most important medicine and that diving deep into the psyche is meant for later on in the healing process. We try to follow her advice too. I start to do a lot of homework outside the bathroom while Jack showers so that I could listen for retching. I develop a keen ability to sniff out cleaning products, gum, or perfume in a room I've just walked into. I check the toilet like clockwork before flushing is allowed. As you may have guessed, Jack hates Maudsley. (laughs) Leslie told my parents that that's to be expected, though. She explains that anorexics are usually resistant to this treatment approach because it has a really high success rate still jack sits at the table for hours and refuses to follow leslie's snack and meal routines she screams when she has to eat cake her ultimate fear food at dessert time our initial try at maudsley is a bust before long jack initiates a hunger strike (sighs) my parents decide to bring her to the hospital when i'm on my high school senior trip in washington dc she sends me selfies from her hospital bed and fixates on dyeing her hair pink while my parents call me in tears from another room. They give me the rundown on those calls. Jack has extremely low levels of electrolytes and needs an IV. Her heart is really weak from the purging. She could have died if they didn't intervene. She's on a strict schedule of insured drinks and is told that if she refuses them, she'll get the feeding tube. Her doctors agree that she'd be a good candidate for in-treatment care, and she's admitted to a psychiatric facility a few days after her initial arrival. On my trip, my teacher surprised her class with a night on a party boat. (laughs) There's (laughs) blasting music and flashing strobe lights, but I can't harness the energy it takes to move my body, let alone dance. On the upper deck, I huddle up in the corner, glued to my phone, anxiously awaiting any updates. I can't focus on the Capitol building tour the next morning, and I don't feel like smiling for pictures in front of the Washington Monument. I just want to go home and be close to my sister again. (sighs) The first time I visit her in the facility, I'm scared. We drive up a hilly winding road until the main building comes into view. It's giant, like an aging red brick castle. I stare out my window and catch a glimpse of myself and its reflection. My under eye bags are deep purple. My eyes are still bloodshot and puffy from all the crying I've been doing the past few days. I wonder how many other siblings have taken the drive up this hill, seen this hospital and felt the same deep ache in their heart. I wish I didn't feel so alone. My parents find a parking spot close to the front entrance and we head inside. The hallways are long and eerily quiet. A fish tank bubbles next to the front desk with the sign and papers. I register the smell. It's like someone knew they had a bunch of old, moldy furniture stinking up the place, and they tried to cover it up with some lemon-scented Lysol. The walls are lined with circular windows like the ones on ships, and small slivers of blue daylight shine onto the polished wooden floors. We walk up two flights of stairs, ring the bell to the unit, and wait for a nurse to come open the hulking metal door. We're waiting for what seems like forever. In the meantime, I go over what I'll say to Jack when we finally talk face to face. I try to decide which fat bastard or Melissa McCarthy quote I'll lead with when I see her. I want to distract her, so maybe I'll get the details on which shade of pink she plans to do next. Maybe to make her feel loved. I'll tell her about all the people from our gym who have been asking about her. I get pulled out of my thoughts as the nurse greets us. She reminds us of the visitation rules, no food or drink in the unit, all gifts for patients have to be thoroughly vetted by the nurses and all non-approved items must go inside one of the lockers between the waiting area and the ward. I hand the nurse some photographs I printed out for Jack to hang on her room's walls. We load our stuff into a locker and follow the nurse inside. I guess we're in the right place because I smell anorexia in the air. I first learned about it on a curious google search a few months ago after realizing my room had a stink I couldn't scrub out. Turns out that anorexia throws your system so out of whack that your body can begin the cannibalization process. Evidently, the whole thing stinks. I can't bear to look at the other patients in their eyes. So I train my own down toward the nurse's scuffed Air Force 1s and hold them there as we make our way down the hallway. When I see Jack, I forget everything I plan to say or do, and I just run to her. We hug, and we give each other some hearty pats on the back. I break away first so I can look at her. I missed you so much, I say. I guess I missed you too, she jokes, cupping my face in her hands. We spend the day together, and I fill her in on last night's UFC fights while we hang the photos on the concrete walls in her room. In one, we stand together with our friends from the gym. It's right after class, and we're all genuinely smiling and seriously sweating. Another picture shows half of me smiling on the beach in Puerto Rico. Jack used up the majority of that camera's film to take pictures that were covered up by her thumb. It's so cold and sterile in the unit. The teens with no visitors play Super Mario Brothers on the Wii in the main area. And Jack tells me that the theme song is starting to drive her nuts because it's looped so many times. I feel bad when she mentions that she shivers all night because she's not allowed to have a blanket. She explains that it's to prevent kids from doing something stupid, but I'm so mad they leave my sister in the cold. Psychiatric facilities are the worst. We both agree. I'm sad she's here, but I'm happy to hear that she started choosing the meals she's offered over the entrance. After we say our goodbyes, I turn to make a final funny face at her through the glass panel of the unit's door. I watch her laugh and mouth, call you later, gesturing an imaginary telephone up to her ear. By the time I turn away, I see that my parents have already made their way back down the hall. I dawdle behind them. I think it's my body's reaction to my mind's not wanting to leave yet. I don't know what compels me, but I stop to look past an open door in the hall and into someone's room. It's dark and I hear ragged, forceless breaths coming from the back corner. The light from the hall shines onto the figure of a woman. She's hunched over in her wheelchair. A bag of white liquid sways gently beside her head and it's connected to a tube in her nose. She's withered. Her eyes are bulging and distant. Her cheeks are sunken into her face. She gazes straight down at the floor with a profound sadness. I'm looking at a woman whose spirit seems to have left her body. I'll never forget her face or her eyes or how much I hoped in that moment that I'll never see my sister like that. As we leave the hospital, the sun is setting and the air is colder than it was earlier. I cry the whole ride home and at night I wear Jack's blue hoodie to bed. When I turn out my light, I think about what I miss about having Jack here with me. I promise myself when she comes home, I'll give her dibs on whichever shirt she wants. I know she's trying to fall asleep now too. She's far away from me. She doesn't have a blanket, but I still whisper. Good night, Jack. I love you. Before I drift off to sleep.
1: Thank you. Oh my goodness. So much, Sophia. Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. Like that end part, like that. Mm.
0: the first time I read it, I just like got like, ow. It like, it hurts. Just thank you so much for joining us for the yes. first time as an author. Yes. You've yes. Come on as a host before you've gotten the feel of what that's like, and you know, you're getting into this and it's just so, it's so awesome. Yes. Um, really quick before we get started, Life Out Loud just wants to recognize that these kinds of stories can touch people in unexpected ways. And we want to share with listeners that if you or someone you know is experiencing yes. disorders, there are resources available to you. N-E-D-A, or the National Eating Disorders Association, provides a national 24-hour phone, text, online chat for people with eating disorders and their loved ones. Reach out for support, resources, and treatment options. This website is a wonderful place to begin that recovery journey. Their phone number is 800-931-2237, and their website is www national eating disorders.org. And for a list of more resources, please check out our website.
3: And firstly, because it's on top of all of our minds, and surely is for the listeners, we like to ask how is Jack now?
4: Thank you for asking that. She's doing great, to put yes. it in short. Oh, that's um, good to hear. Yeah, I mean, every day is Definitely a challenge. You know what I mean? Because recovery is not something that's necessarily linear Mm -hmm. and not something that you're just going to reach the end of at one point and just be over and done with. So every day you have to wake up and choose to be in recovery and choose Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. fight against that cycle that you were in for so long. So I'm happy to say that she found a very good therapist who she mm-hmm. feels like she can communicate well with, and that gets her. Great. And she's doing a lot better these days. That's really awesome. Yeah. It's yeah. so such to a hear. relief to hear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely for me, too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, so shifting gears a little bit, going more to the construction of your story, you use vivid descriptions throughout your piece, from noting the color of the backpack you found the toothbrush evidence in, blue, to the hoodie you wore coming back from visiting Jack in the hospital. What is the significance in you painting this world around you, your sister, and your interaction so vividly?
4: Um, I mean, I remember things like with details like that. Like to me, I'll never forget the color of that toothbrush that I found. Um, and largely, this is something that took place in my home. So it's an environment that I'm really familiar with and like I know very well Mm -hmm. so I wanted to put whoever was reading it exactly into my shoes to see everything that I was seeing and discover things the same way that I was discovering them and yeah I mean including those details was really important to me for setting this up and showing people what it's really like
0: Mm -hmm. awesome and in that same vein of those descriptions Mm -hmm. uh there's a part of in the story that like really hits me and it really like made me think about like this being a theme throughout. Um, it's in the hospital where you describe looking at an open door in the hall and into someone's room, just like glancing and seeing a figure of a woman in a wheelchair with that bag of white liquid connected to a tube in her nose. And you don't just describe her physically. Like that was more like the scene around her, mm-hmm. but you also know like her gaze, uh, as looking straight down at the floor with the profound sadness of a woman whose spirit seems to have left her body. And I notice in the piece that you don't describe physical, physical traits much at all. Like, I don't know what color hair your sister has or um, much like about her person, right. um, which is like juxtaposed against this like vivid surrounding scenery. And it makes me want to ask, like, was it purposeful? Like, did it tie into this main theme of an illness centered around like obsession with
4: the physical? Of course, a hundred percent. That's very insightful (gasps) because I want to make the point that people with all body types, like you don't have to be real thin. You don't have to be the biggest person in the room. Mm -hmm. All people, all different types of people on all spectrums experience eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm for me describing the way my sister looked and how she looked when she was at her sickest point, it's just not necessary for you to understand like the gravity of what she was going through. Right. Because people like eating disorders vary on such a very long spectrum in that you could be at your biggest and still have an eating disorder. You could be real thin and still have an eating disorder. You could be an average person and still have an eating disorder so yeah. it's very important to me for people who are just getting introduced into this world maybe to know that you could be anywhere on the spectrum and there's not necessarily a size that says you're sick or you're not wow I love that.
2: Yeah. yeah that was like so well said and I loved yeah. how you like it's like body positivity but like on a different kind of scale you really covered everyone i didn't realize that when i read the piece myself wow
0: that's so profound yeah Yeah, it's like this like it's like a subtle way to say don't judge like it's a subtle way to say like this is actually none of your business you know Mm -hmm. for the story to still be impactful and for the story to still be vivid um you don't need to focus on the physical and I feel like it's just like a greater commentary on like the obsession with the word world in general with the physical um Mm -hmm. that kind of opens the door to eating disorders of all types and yeah I I noticed that and I was like I have to ask because that's (laughs) that is just so it is so like yeah subtle but profound
4: thank you for recognizing that it was a very conscious choice yeah, it was just like,
2: wow, it blows my mind, honestly, Sophia, you're such a great writer. I really enjoyed reading yeah. it. And yeah. lastly, Sophia, if anything, what would you like your listeners to take away from this story?
4: Um, I think that the main thing I want people to know is that I shared this story with the intent of having the person that needs it to find it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, I felt very alone going through this because I was a family member and that's not really a position that gets talked about a lot when you're doing research on these types of things. So I want someone who's in a similar position to me to know that they're not alone going through it.
1: Mm-hmm. And even for
4: people who have eating disorders and their families and whoever, whatever position you occupy in this, that you're not alone in it. hmm Um, I also want to say that it's very important to use the resources that are around you. Mm -hmm. So for example, I was a child in the situation and there wasn't much I could do that was going to change anything in the grand scheme of things, except to tell someone that could get my sister help, which was my parents.
1: Mm -hmm. Right, Right.
4: So talking to people that you trust and, Even if you have the eating disorder yourself, talking to someone that you trust is very important. Um, And finally, I just want to say that I am probably the proudest sister out there that my sister has gone through all of this and she still wakes up every day and she still chooses to recover and she works on herself all the time. It makes me emotional. I am the crier of the two. I didn't put that in there. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's making all of us emotional too. Like if you all could see the Zoom room right now, you know. Yeah. So I just want to say that she makes my heart happy every day. She gets better and chooses to get better.
1: Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. That so emotional. That was beautiful, Sophia. No. Oh my gosh. Not a dry eye in the Zoom studio tonight. Huh?
3: <laughs> yeah, it was really hard to like like read the story without like stopping to like really understand how like
1: and what you were
3: going through.
1: Mm-hmm. I think For sure. Was the no, I, I'm gonna be completely honest. I finished that story and I was crying. I was like, I'm so glad I didn't read this on the train. <laughs> I would be in big trouble. But thank you so much, Sophia, for sharing the story with us and for sharing your sister's story with not only us here, but everybody who's listening. And I do hope that the person who needs to find the story will.
4: Thank you. Thank you all for having me and for your care and your questions and for your kindness. I really appreciate you all. And I appreciate you, Professor Matrazo, for having me on here and giving me the opportunity to share something that's very important to me. Thank you, Sophia.
0: Thank you for writing it with such care, um, for all of the drafts, all the time you put into this, you know, getting every detail right, um, it really matters. And um, it was very noticed and we're very proud of you.
4: Thank you.
2: This next story is by a new author to the podcast, Danielle.
3: Danielle is a sophomore at John Jay, majoring in political science and minoring in creative writing. Born and raised in Brooklyn, you can often find her with her head in the clouds and her nose in a book, daydreaming about the future. She one day hopes to help others through her stories and whichever career path she decides on.
0: A warning that this story touches on very sensitive topics that might be difficult
1: to hear. Listener discretion is advised. Let's take a listen to Danielle's piece. It was
5: normal. The smell of construction, the thick layer of sawdust on every surface. From my bedroom, I heard the loud noises of a table saw. It was after 10 p.m. on a Wednesday night, and my father was doing construction again. The living room was already covered in strewn tiles and wood shavings. This newest project, replacing the floor, was a project he started months ago, something he'd randomly start on and off again whenever he felt like it. As a result, the floor was missing, making it impossible to move through the entire front room. My mother was stressed from the mess and my father was angry at the constant reminders that he had to finish what he started. This was a typical night in our home, though, it would be the last normal night for a long time. The truth had already started to seep its way through the cracks of our home, floor or no floor. The buzz of the table saw stopped suddenly, replaced by my father's screaming. At first, my siblings and I were stunned and did not know what to do, or if my father was serious. My father was never serious. He was the type of guy who was always joking, always making light of everything. He would always laugh at the bad things in life, and when we would cry, he would sit with us and make jokes till our tears turned to laughter. There was no way something bad had happened to him, but I still dialed 911 with shaking hands as I made my way downstairs. Blood was splattered all over, the floor, the table, the dresser, even on the piano, in a trail leading to the door. There, my father lay screaming, his thumb almost completely sawed off. I took one look at his finger and screamed. The top half of his thumb was on the floor and his finger was a bloody stump. The smell of iron flooded the house. The operator on the phone spent a painful eight minutes trying to calm me down. At the time, I thought I was being helpful. At 14, I was really the useless one, and my 12-year-old brother had to help my father. I could barely move. My mother, a personal trainer, was working at a client's house. Who would clean up the mess? Once the EMTs arrived, I collapsed in my room, under my covers, the blood below drying minute by minute. In our basement, my father had built himself a workshop. It was dirty, with a bad smell and tools all over. No one could enter. He would spend hours there withdrawing from our family. We did not know what took place in this workshop. One day, not long after the accident, he snapped on our family vacation to Florida. The trip meant to be fun and exciting turned into an awful mess. One day he stayed in the hotel entirely refusing to spend the day with us. Another day, he disappeared for around 30 minutes leaving us in the car confused. He seemed irritated with everything and started pointing out everything wrong with what my brothers or I were doing. This was shocking because he was always the one who defended us when we made mistakes, the guy who acted like we could never do anything wrong. He regularly told us that we were the funniest and smartest kids a man could wish for. Suddenly, he seemed like he hated us sometimes. When I was dating someone, my mother felt I was too young and he started telling her everything about my relationship. It felt like he was tattling on me, making me the center of everyone's frustration my mother was so upset with me so angry but even though my father was the one responsible for it he never acted like he cared when my mother asked him repeatedly to fix the floor he would flip out at her that he didn't have time to and would do it in the summer yet refused to let her hire someone to prepare it we started to catch him in lies like the time he claimed my brothers did not want to hang out with him when really they had been begging him all day to take them to the park We once found him passed out in the passenger seat of his car and he claimed he was just exhausted even though he had not done a thing all day. What was wrong with him, I wondered. Where was the guy who took me to museums and helped me with my school projects? The dad who told me to stay curious and question everything, who always made sure I had my favorite stuffed animal whenever I was sad or scared? The guy who stayed up with me all night when there was a storm, who'd never once raised his voice or let me down before and who'd always wanted to play gin rummy with me? Where was the man who taught me how to ride a bike? Each day his behaviors grew more and more erratic. He was angry, so angry, all the time. And then my father was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. This disorder causes manic depression. It's the sort of thing that leaves someone feeling paranoid and isolated. It can also make them exhibit risk-taking behaviors, leaving those around them to wonder what is wrong and scared for them. The pieces of the puzzle my father had suddenly become were slowly coming together. He could help, right? And everything would be okay, I told myself. I researched and spoke to mental health professional and asked questions. I made sure it was not necessarily permanent and scarring, and I took comfort knowing the right combination of therapy and medication can help. I didn't know there was more to come. My mother and I were driving in her car when she turned around to look at me. I immediately knew something was wrong. Again, Danielle, your father has to go away for a little bit. He's going to physical therapy rehab for his back. Her voice sounded strained and scared. I knew she was lying. After everything we went through, just like my father, she continued to lie too. That night, I stole my mother's phone. I read through her texts with my aunt, and there it was, the truth. My father was addicted to heroin, cocaine, and various other drugs. Turns out, I had never even known my father sober. He had been on different pills since I was a baby. It was a shock to me at first. He was always so functional. He never lost his job or looked extremely disheveled. He had a home and a family. He wasn't on the streets as shows and movies would like people to believe. He was healthy and smart and usually a good father, always so quick to wipe our tears and help us. He wasn't like the addicts I heard about in hell class or on the after-school specials. But then I started to think about the times he would fall asleep randomly and it would be impossible to wake him. The days he'd disappear randomly, the time he'd spent in his workshop, the nights he wouldn't come home. That day he met with a random man and exchanged something with him when we were at the park. When I was 12, he started doing heroin. That was when things flipped. Before, he was a functioning drug addict. Now, it was harder to hide, harder to pretend. Logically, everything made sense now. Why my parents were being cheaper than usual and why there was always fights and never laughter anymore. My family's issues over the years made sense, but I did not want them to make sense. My father was my role model, my hero. He was one who always sat down with me and told me the truth and who made me believe I could do anything. He was the one who took me on educational trips, who taught me to play poker and gin rami so I could always be a winner. He was the one who wouldn't let me win, but made me work for it. I loved my mother dearly, but it was always my father who I looked up to. I felt like I had a special place in his heart and could not believe that he could choose drugs over me. I knew that he did not have the greatest childhood, but I did not understand what had happened to make him this way. How could he choose drugs over his own children? I might never know, but I had to come to terms with that. My father went to rehab. He came back. He went to rehab. He came back. He went back to rehab, and again. He came back. He refused to stay in rehab, refused to stay clean. My mother finally filed a restraining order against him. He'd come into our house anyway. When I saw him, I'd scream, I hate you, and run to my room until the police escorted him out. This became a common occurrence. The flashing lights of red and blue were a permanent fixture in front of our home for the next few months. It was shocking, all-consuming, terrifying, and it was embarrassing. My family simply couldn't catch a break. I was 15 years old and had just started my sophomore year of high school. I attended an expensive private school, which I was soon forced to leave because of our lack of money. My father had drained our bank accounts on drugs. I switched to a school I disliked. My mental health was already heading downhill and after this, I truly hit rock bottom. I became detached from my family, spending countless nights sleeping at friends' houses. I showed up to school every other day at best and used the issues I was dealing with as an excuse. I was diagnosed with anxiety, depression, and panic disorder. I had to go on medication just to be able to get out of bed and some days I couldn't even accomplish that. I missed at least 30 days of school and just barely passed 10th grade. My sophomore year is a big blur of one traumatic thing after another. I repress so many memories from this time period, I still wonder if any are worth having. Two years later, hearing sirens outside my house or the sight of blood can send me into a panic attack. It's hard to open up about my trauma and problems, but it's also therapeutic. Two years later, and we're all really starting to heal. My mother deserves so much credit, I realized during this time. Not only had she fought to keep us together after the incidents with my father, fought to keep the lights on, and food on the table, got us in therapy, and took the time to sit with us and talk us through it all, she was working long hours and still took the time to plan my brother's bar mitzvah, a major event that would help retain normalcy. I also realized how hard she fought to give us a normal child for as long as she could. I learned that she herself was oblivious for most of the time my father was using, and realized her hiding it from us was the only way she knew how to protect us. I learned that she tried everything she could to get my father to go to rehab, and to stay away from us until he was clean again. I think of how alone she must have felt, how worried, how she must have been fixing all our problems while having no one to fix hers. She was truly alone through all of this and still stood with her head held high, never wavering in her support for our family. One night, after my therapy appointment, I got a call from my mother telling me it was urgent that I return home. Thoughts raced through my mind at a thousand miles an hour. Did my father die? I thought to myself, worried. I hated him, but... I arrived home to a scowling lady wearing a windbreaker and holding a notebook. She sat me down and questioned me about my parents, my father in particular. Child services had been called on us. She was there to help, but she was nasty, rude, and unforgiving. She questioned everything from my shaking legs to my messy room. She didn't seem to care about my anxiety or my mental health, about everything my mom and brother and I had worked to fix. All she wanted to do was to take us away from our mother. After all my mom had done to support us through this hard time and how she had cleaned up the house and worked day and night to keep our family afloat, thankfully, she didn't succeed. There's one silver lining in this horrible story. I created my own form of release and therapy. I began to write everything down. I always loved to write stories and in this year I wrote over 400 poems and stories. Pouring my heart onto those endless pages helped make the darkness fade. To this day, these poems and stories are my most treasured possessions. Who knows if they're even any good, but they help me keep sane over this time period and help me come to terms with the fact that my family was never perfect and certainly never will be. In January of 2018, my father moved into his parents' house. He spent a month there, finally detoxing, and on February 16th, 2018, my father stopped using drugs. This was not, however, the life-changing moment I thought it would be. The drugs might have been gone, but our issues remained. They didn't fade away with the highs. When he returned home, it didn't take much time for my little brothers to forgive him. My mother, as wary as she was, has too much love and forgiveness in her heart to hate anyone for too long. And by April, everyone was working on their issues together, except for me. I would never forgive my father. I was certain of that. I couldn't help but feel that my mother was weak and my brothers were too little to truly grasp what he had done. Nothing he said or did could erase the hate from my heart. All I wanted was my father back, but I refused to be tricked again. I refused to miss the signs. I waited and watched, searching for signs he would relapse again and leave us. I watched his fingers, what he ate, where he went, how he answered my brother, the way he'd interact with the family. I watched to see if he would begin returning to the basement again, and I watched to see if his feet were swelling once more. I even looked to see if I could see new track marks forming on his arm. But over time, it became more and more clear every day that he wasn't leaving us this time. He started to attend Narcotics Anonymous meetings and became dedicated to staying clean. One day, as spring started to fade into summer, I had a real conversation with him. He told me he loved me and said something that instantly made me forgive him. You're one of my reasons for living, he said. These words struck my heart and have remained there since. I gave him a huge hug and held on to him like he was the only thing tethering me to earth. In the end, my father did pick his children over his drugs. Things feel okay. Good even. Still. I've done my research. I know the ways this could still affect me later, but I will not be a statistic. Studies show that children of addicts are more likely to become addicts themselves. In fact, according to Jessica Salas, Children of substance abusing parents are more than twice as likely to have an alcohol and or drug use disorder themselves by young adulthood as compared to their peers. I can't speak for my siblings, who are still too young to be doing drugs, but I can speak for myself. Unlike many of my peers, I've never done drugs. I learned to watch myself if and when I drink and stay safe to prevent addiction from taking over my life. The cycle will not continue with me. One year later, my family stood watching proudly as my father accepted his one-year clean coin. I held my mother's hand as happy tears dripped down both our faces. My father shared a beautiful speech, thanking us all for staying by him. He then got down on one knee and called my mother up. She had stopped wearing her wedding ring ages ago, but he had snuck it from her jewelry box. He gave it back to her in front of all our friends and family, all of his reasons for living. She accepted it, and they kissed. Life was still far from perfect. But it didn't need to be anymore we had my father back clean and healthy for the first time since he was 14 and that was enough for now
2: wow (laughs) wow danielle thank you for joining us danielle before we get started with this interview life out loud just wants to recognize that stories about substance abuse can touch people in unexpected ways we want to share with listeners that if you or someone you know is experiencing difficulties with substance use, there are resources available to you. SAMHSA, or Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, has a national helpline that provides free and confidential services in both English and Spanish, providing information and referrals. They connect individuals and families facing substance use and or mental disorders to local services such as treatment facilities, support groups, and community-based organizations. Their phone number is 1-800-662-HELP or 4357, and their website is www.samhsa.gov. For a list of more resources, please check our website.
3: Thank you, Leah, for sharing the resource with us. So now we would like to get into your story. So when you found out that your father was an addict, you were shocked and claimed that he wasn't like the other addicts that you heard about in health class or on the after school specials. At first, the reality before your eyes did not reflect as what you were taught in school. But then you began to notice the things that he would do that seemed out of place, such as the long hours in his workshop were just randomly disappearing. So why do you think it's only after you learned about the truth? that you began to notice some of these things that's odd with your father. And were there any moments before this where you like questioned your father's actions or even tried to make sense of it or justify it?
5: Um, I think I was just really young at the time. My father started getting into harder drugs like heroin when I was 12. So I think as a 12 year old, it's very easy to explain away weird behaviors that like your parents are doing. But Mm -hmm. after we found out the truth, it's very easy to look back. It's hindsight. You look back and you're like, oh, that makes sense. He was so angry because he couldn't do his drugs. He was so angry because we were taking him away from the bad stuff he was doing.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I think that's what, like, sets up your story in a cool way, is that it, like, comes in with, like, a bang. It's, like, this really, like, you know, intense scene about, like, seeing blood and you know with your father's accident in the workshop and then like coming to terms with it all and just like how it all like comes together that hindsight is really like definitely apparent in your story I feel. Hindsight's twenty twenty, as they say. Yeah <laughs> yeah uh there's a part in your story that like really hits me about your piece that I think is like a little bit more easy to like gloss over. It's when you describe the systemic barriers to your family healing, like when you describe the interaction with the social worker who who didn't seem to care and was actually straining your family more by trying to split you up, um, it's just a really like, you know, upsetting moment that like we see through your eyes as a child and you solidify these barriers when you talk about like the statistics of children, of parents who abuse substances and that precision you have in monitoring yourself because you're determined not to continue that pattern. Um, And it makes me want to ask, like, are there any other ways besides that, like, monitoring of yourself that, like, you've looked into or thought about looking into support for how this has affected you, like groups or therapy or things of that sort? There are so many resources out there
5: for children of addicts. There's this amazing group called Alateen, which I personally have never attended, but um, it's an amazing group for young kids of addicts and they all get together and they talk about the things that they have faced with their parents. Mm. I personally prefer um, one-on-one therapy and I have been attending therapy since I was 15 and I think it really helped me be able to see everything that was going on and it really helped me work through my issues and I really don't think I'd be here today without
0: it. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's so that's so important to know is like using it's something we talked about in the previous interview, too, is like using the resources available to you. It's like, yeah, there are so
5: many great resources just one click away and I think it's very valuable to know about them just so you could have it in the back of your mind.
2: Very for sure. And then, you know, we have technology at our fingertips nowadays, we have, you know, the ability to find these resources too, and, you know, on our website, we provide them as well. So I think it's good to know that there are resources there. And that even though it doesn't look like people care, there are people out there who care. And um, to go back to your story, Danielle, when I was reading it, this, this like part like stuck out to me because of the repetition. In your piece, you say, my father went to rehab, and he came back he went back to rehab, he came back over and over. And this repetition, like, it it feels, like, so, like, poetic, but, like, in such a saddening way. And it kind of, like, sums up what we're sure, like, oh, like, it was, like, so hard to, to have that, those years pile up of seeing it just, like, the same thing over and over. Like, he goes, and then he comes back, and he goes, and he comes back. Was that, like, your intention in that piece, like, to cover, like, the fluctuations, or was there more behind it? Um, I wanted to show
5: how hard it was for me to trust him again, because it wasn't just like he, he didn't just go away and then come back clean. And he, and he, it was very hard for him to transition back into the family, but my siblings and my mother really forgave him much easier than I did. And Mm -hmm. I saw, oh, he, he keeps on leaving and coming back and going back to drugs. I'm not trusting him. And Mm -hmm. I really felt like that was a very relevant part of my story where I didn't forgive him right away.
2: Right I, I definitely see that like it's just like you could like feel the emotion like with the repetitions and then later on like now knowing this information when we go back and we look at it it's like yes it, it makes so much sense it clicks.
5: Mm-hmm. Um, I really wanted to include that repetition in my story because I am also like a poet and I do mention that later in the story mm-hmm. that writing like that really helped me through the hard times so I also that was a little piece of me that I threw in there.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think you mentioned uh, 300 stories or 300 poems, Uh, was this like, was this like a mix of different poems and stories, or was this like one of them that you just like sat down and were like, this, I have to talk about this in one go, or was it like a mix?
5: It was a mixture of both those things. I have written multiple poems about my father and everything that we went through but I actually wrote about the story originally as just an essay for myself. Like Mm -hmm. I wanted my story out there. And then when the the opportunity came up in my class with uh, Professor Madrazo, I took the opportunity to really get into everything I was feeling with my father.
0: Mm, Yeah, I think specifically that the part of you, what you mentioned before, of like the part of you not easily forgiving him, because you also talk about which I think is very important to talk about your own mental health and your own like impacts of that and how like it, it just all ties in. It's like completely, you know, you're, you're writing the story as like, you know, showing us all of these like things that your father has been through, but you're also in it showing us what you've been through in it too. Right. Yes.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for sharing this story with us, Danielle. And lastly, what would you like the listeners to
5: take away from your story? Uh, You could fix any mistake you make in life. You could get clean 30 years after you start using drugs. My father started using drugs when he was a very young boy, and it, it continued through his adult life. And he's managed to turn that all around. He has a good job. He's clean. We're all very happy now. And You might think, oh, I have messed up my entire life. It's been years of me messing up with everyone around me. It's not true. You could turn it around the second if you want to.
0: Wow, Danielle, thank you. That's so powerful. Yeah, awesome. We love that Note, And with that, thank you again, Danielle, for sharing this story. That is so many stories in one. And like the other interview, we really hope that this story also reaches who it's meant to kind of reach and that your end like your end takeaway for listeners reaches who it has to reach
5: I really hope it does it's help us out there and you just have to look for it and want it
3: That concludes our second episode of the sixth season, From an Insider. We are all so excited to bring you new stories soon, amplifying these voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear from.
1: You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes content. We'd like to
0: thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, as well as our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud.
2: And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. And a very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and have a good night.
0: Good
1: night. night.
0: night. Bye.